0: Konnichiwa and welcome to the board game dojo. My name is Eric. Thanks so, so much for tapping into the show today. I mean it. We appreciate each and every one of you that take the time out of your busy day to listen to our show. Today, we have three games for you. The funny party game nominated for the Spiel des Jahres top 10, the somewhat educational party game, Countries Le Jeu, and the game for a party of one, Coffee Shop Pocket. Just a reminder that if you have suggestions for the show, whether that is for games to review, subjects to discuss, or just want to say, hey, we are always available on Twitter and Instagram, as well as we read your emails at podcast at gmail.com. We love interacting with you and appreciate all your feedback. And an extra special thanks to Gary, who became our first contributor to our Kofi. Thank you very much, Gary. All right, and now to the games. I think I'm going to go a bit out of order from the one I mentioned earlier and start off with the educational party game Countries Le Jeu, which just translates to Countries, the game. Now, you can actually only order this off of the small publisher website, and you can't find this on Board Game Geek. This was one of the two games we were introduced to at last week's International Board Game Meetup by the organizer of the meetup who happened to work at the Board Game Café. He brought us over this tiny box and was so shy about it almost. He just goes, hey, I have this game. It's not published. Do you want to try it? Like, okay, sure. So let me explain how this game works. And if you know the game timeline, then you're about 95% of the way there. In Countries, the game, everyone is dealt six cards that have countries on them. On one side is the country name, and on the back, which you're not allowed to look at, is all the information about the country. After everyone has their countries, one category will be flipped from the pile, and this will be something like size or latitude, and one seed country will be put in the middle of the table. Then, one by one, everyone will have two choices on their turn. Either A, they can put one of their six cards in the middle on either side of the cards in the middle. So for example, if the category is size and the seed country is New Zealand, and you have the Canada card, you might play that to the left of New Zealand to say Canada is bigger than New Zealand. That's choice A. Choice B is to say, hey, I think there is a mistake here somewhere. You don't have to say where, just that there is a mistake you think. If someone says there is a mistake, you then flip all the cards in the middle over to the information side and see if they line up properly. If there is a mistake, the player before the person who said there was a mistake draws two cards. It Doesn't matter if it was their mistake or not. If there is no mistake, then the person who said there was a mistake draws two cards. This keeps going until someone runs out of cards. And that person wins. So right away, in theory, and a bit in practice, there is more of a bluffing aspect to this than timeline. If you can just convince the person after you that you knew what you were talking about, then you're safe. And a lot of the countries in the game are ones you probably don't know much about. So there can be a little bit of doubt. A little bit of, I have no idea if Libya has a taller, highest point than Somalia. And there was a little bit of that. But I think it was overshadowed by how static it felt. Now let's just set the scene a bit. We had seven people at this table from six different countries. The amount of geography based on these education systems were quite different. I know for me, being an American, I didn't really learn that much about other countries that weren't named Canada, Mexico, England, or of course the US. On top of that, everyone was meeting each other for the first time. So you had that. You also had a super spike next to me. We talked about spike personalities in our personality episode, which is all the way back at episode six. Spikes are people who play games to win. They derive their pleasure from the win itself and not the game. Their fun is in the win column, not in the camaraderie, generally speaking, around the table. So what ended up happening a lot of the time was this static thing where four or five people would play their cards. Then someone would call it out because, well, the odds that those four or five cards were exactly right was small. You took a bet, really, between two bad options. Do you attempt to play a card you're not sure of and hope the next person doesn't call you out? Or do you call it out yourself? And because it was quickly shown that calling out was always a good option, that was the option people took. So without fail, you'd get to four, five cards and then call it out. Then there would be a mistake. Okay, draw two cards, start over, play four or five cards, call it out, there's a mistake, draw two cards, rinse and repeat. It was especially prominent towards the end of the game that took way too long to get to in my opinion. But I might be jaded. Let me back up. Yes, Sumachan won this game. I'm not salty, I promise. Okay, well, hmm, okay, maybe a little bit. But I think it illustrates an interesting dynamic at the table. I got dealt a very good hand of cards. Trust me, I was not winning based on skill. As I said before, American education system and all. And hold on, shout out to all my fellow teachers out there. I know it isn't you. I just got dealt great cards for the categories. For the population category, I had India. For the size category, I had Canada. It just worked out. Well, because people can see how many cards you have, the spike next to me made it his goal to make sure I wasn't going to win. And this was in stark contrast to the other side of the table that was sometimes helping each other. And guess where Sumachan was sitting? I'm not saying one side of the table was playing more properly than the other. The spikes versus the ones just having fun. Both playing styles worked for this game. I just thought that the contrast was intriguing, especially because this game could be good with the right group. It just has to be a group that has decided in advance what kind of game this is. Is it a game that you're going to play very competitively? Or are you going to see it more as a cooperative puzzle? Does everyone in your group have similar knowledge of geography? Because Simichon's first impression was that she would never want to play this with people who are too different in to knowledge because then the game comes to a standstill. Which, to be fair, it did. But what I really want to see workshopped, and I don't know if it would even work, is the mistake callout. I get that a big decision you have to make during the game is whether or not to play a card or call out the mistake. You know you want to play a card, but often you know there has to be a mistake somewhere, right? Your friends can't be that precise, right? I get it. But it was just too easy. We played this game for an hour, and nobody who tried calling out a mistake was wrong. I would love to see what the game would look like if you had to call out a specific section if you called a mistake. For example, maybe you have to choose a section of three cards, and if there is a mistake there, then you called it successfully. If not, the mistake is somewhere else, or there are no mistakes, then you have to draw cards. I think this would promote a bit speedier play, less stops for calling out, and more bluffing. Oh, it wasn't where I played the cards. Trust me, I'm an expert in Trinidad and Tobago geography. If you're going to call it out, it's got to be that section over there. Maybe it was because of the staticness that I mentioned earlier, but people were getting pretty tired of it by the end. So a way to speeding it up so cards are played, even if you think there's a mistake, would be a nice addition. But overall, I think this game has a great spot in a classroom. Like Timeline, this would be a great way to get students to learn. It doesn't have cultural facts or anything, but it would be a great little trivia game to break into small groups and play. As a game for hobbyists, I think it falls in the same plane as Timeline. If you like Timeline, you're going to like this one. Countries is a bit more party-like because there can be bluffing, but ultimately it would come down to whether you prefer history or geography. But if you didn't like Timeline, I don't think this moves the needle enough for you to enjoy this one either. And that was Countries Le Jou, by Les Editions de Genepi. The next game we played was a party game called Top 10. Try looking that one up on YouTube, Top 10 Board Game. Top 10 is a game that resides in the family of games with Wavelength and board game dojo favorite, Ethel, where you are given a place on a scale and you need to give clues to make other people figure out where on the scale you are. Let me explain Top 10 a bit and then come back and compare it to the other two. Top 10 is a game that you can absolutely play as a game or just for an activity. The game is played that you need to survive five rounds. You'll deal a card to everyone at the table, and these cards will say a number between one and ten and it has a little meter-looking thing on the bottom pointed towards the green side or the red side. The numbers in the meter mean the same thing, but I just think it's two ways to help people visualize where they are on that scale. The chief of the round will read off a prompt, and these prompts widely vary. We had the normal, what would you take with you to the desert, but we also had, if you were God and you had one day on Earth, what would be the most effective way to prove to humans you exist? The 10 is the most useful or most effective, whereas the 1 is the least. Everyone will say an answer that is supposed to clue the chief into where they are on that scale. Then the chief will choose the order, and hopefully you go from the smallest to the biggest, though the other way is fine too. For each incorrect answer, you lose one health, which in this case is unicorns. If you survive five rounds of this with any unicorns, you win. If all the unicorns are gone, you lose. The more unicorns you have left, the better your win. So playing this game after playing Wavelength and Ito was really quite an easy learn, and I think it was for everyone at the table who hadn't played those as well. The hardest part was honestly in the naming versus card difference. Why is a game called top 10, but the number 1 is the worst? That honestly tripped a few of us up on multiple occasions. It didn't help that the 1 was also green, whereas the 10 is red. Again, it might be cultural, but for me, green always means go, so green is usually good and red is usually stop or bad. If it just happened on the first hand, that'd be one thing, but we had multiple people mess it up throughout the game and it really caused confusion. It is also worth mentioning that the cards are going to be in a different language. As far as I know, there is no English version of this yet. But aside from that, let's talk about the gameplay, because the gameplay is the important part and the reason why it was nominated for the 2022 Spiel des Jahres. Like I said, it's very easy to pick up, and I really like the variety in this game. The amount of prompts is astounding, especially when you consider the plethora of ways in which you have to convey your clue it isn't just saying a clue it might be miming it might be acting it might be making sounds for example one was how well a fondue party was going and the one was a lady who brilliantly acted out and had her glasses fall into the box like it was falling into the fondue bowl i portrayed my three by just drinking the fondue bowl or we had to act out a response to a hornet from totally not caring to absolute panic which was great in a crowded board game cafe It gives the opportunity for people to get creative in different ways. And because everyone has to give a clue, it gives everyone an equal chance to think of something really good and shine. We ended up playing this, allowing everyone to be the chief wants, meaning we played seven rounds of this instead of just five. And we actually didn't even play with the score at all. We just played for a good time. Now, we cannot keep going and not compare this to the two games in which it will absolutely start ringing some bells for people who have listened to the podcast or watched our YouTube review on Ito, which we called the best party game in years. I'll leave a link in the show description if you want to check that out. Where does top 10 sit in comparison to those? Taking a top-down view of it, let's answer some questions that should at least make the decision easy for some. First off, are you looking for a competitive game? Because then Wavelength is your answer. Ito plays competitively, but you need eight people. Top 10 is cooperative, and most of the time Etho is too. So, Wavelength is it. How about player count? Because if you have less than 6, Etho is the answer. Top 10 and Wavelength really do need more people. That 6 to 8 range is the sweet spot. Etho is good at 4 or 5. Those are the two easy ones, so let's delve in a bit more. When Wavelength came out, I was enamored by it. Many people were. It was such a cool concept, trying to figure out where on this sliding scale a clue would be. Trying to think of a clue was fun. Trying to figure out the clue was fun. Moving the wheel was fun. But there was that one glaring problem, the downtime. Sure, you could try to goad the other team or distract them, but mostly when it is the other team's turn, you're not playing the game. You just watch and maybe laugh. When it's your team's turn, oh, it's so fun. But that's only half the time. Still a fun game, but that's a problem for a lot of people. That's where I think Ethel and Top 10 got it right. They killed the downtime by going, okay, let's all play together then and they went about it in different ways. Top 10 has one person in charge of putting them in order. You're hoping that the person understood what you were talking about. There's tension there as you listen to other people's clues, not only because you're hoping the others give clues that make it easy for the chief, but maybe because you have to adjust your clue. Maybe someone says that a good thing to bring to the desert is water, so you say you need even more water. Ito does a similar thing, but you are all in charge of deciding where these cards go after everyone is done. It's a different style of game. Ito is much more communicative, with more discussion, whereas Top 10 is much more straightforward. Which one is more your style is going to be up to your group. All three of these games are so group-dependent that it isn't even funny. Wavelength and Top 10 are terrible for groups that have people that might have stage fright, or a bit of anxiety with being in charge, because they can be blamed for getting it wrong. Ito is like that too, but it's a bit different. It's more bad-clue-based versus being in charge of something and ruining it. All three of these could fall flat for some, but I think Ito and Top 10 are probably the safest. For my money, Ito and Top 10 are the best, too. I'm sorry, Wavelength, it turns out that these kinds of games are just more fun cooperatively. But the problem now is that neither of these games comes in English. I mean, Exploding Kittens is coming out with an English version of Top 10 in 2024, but they've said they are going to change some mechanics, so I don't know about that version. And there's two conflicting sides of me, the logical side and the emotional side. The logical side tells me that I don't need both of these in my collection. They are mostly the same game, and I could maybe even make one of them the other by just playing by the other's rules? But the emotional side of me wants both, Says there's room in my collection for both. Ito is for 4 and 5 players, top 10 for 6 and 8. This game works so well with my groups. Why wouldn't I buy a game that I can play with more players? That gives me more opportunities to play. I don't know. I'm conflicted. But if you're listening to this on release day, I have a poll up on Twitter that you can vote on or anytime you're listening to this. Comment on that poll. Remember, it's at the BG Dojo. I don't know what I should do. But Top 10 is another good party game, maybe even great, to add to the collection. And that's Top 10, designed by Achadian Picolé, with art by Laura Michaud, and published by Cocktail Games. Finally, we had the game for a party of one, and sometimes two. Coffee Shop Pocket Now, this is a game in the Pocket series of games by Japanese publisher Ju Game Studios. The Pocket series is, as its name implies, games that come in a tuck box smaller than a deck of cards that fit in your pocket. They do this by not including rulebooks in the games. You have to scan the QR code on the back of the box. I don't know, I much prefer paper rulebooks, but I also really dig the environment, so good on Ju Game Studios. That aside, let's talk about Coffee Shop Pocket. This is a solo or cooperative game about running a coffee shop. You start off by separating the deck out into the ingredient cards and the order cards. You have two cup cards as well in the middle of the table. I'm going to first describe the solo game because the two-player game is basically the same. You'll draw ingredient cards, and these will be milk, whipped cream, and espresso. There's lots of espresso in the deck, less of milk and whipped cream. Each of these cards will have a value between 1 and 5 on them. The order cards will have a good, like cafe mocha or a cookie, any ingredients needed to make but these ingredients will be in a specific order on the card. Like it might be two espressos, then a milk, or an espresso, then a milk, then a whipped cream. You are going to draw three cards from the ingredient pile and place them in the two cup cards in the middle of the table. The two cup cards represent you making the order. You're in the process of making the order. You have to fill one of the cups with the ingredients needed to make one of the orders, in either ascending or descending value order. So if the order card says it needs two espressos, then a milk, you need to put two espressos and a milk in that order, either ascending or descending in value. If you do that, you make the good. The goods will either be worth points at the end of the game, or some of them, like the cookie, can turn into ingredients that you'll shuffle into the deck. There are also some goods that unlock certain things or give you powers, like a third coffee cup to make orders, or the ability to reshuffle some cards back into your deck, giving you more time. Because you do run out of time, The ingredient deck is quite small, and if you go through that deck three times, the game is over. So it's a race. Can you finish all of the orders before you go through the deck three times? And that's pretty much the game. There are a couple of rules here and there, like the ability to clean out a cup if you want to use it for something else instead of the cards you've already put there. And there are a couple of additional rules if you want to make it a two-player game, in which both players have cards in their hands. Like the limited communication rule, in which the rulebook says is based off of sounding like a well-run restaurant. So you can't say things like, hey, I don't need milk here, because that would worry the customers that you don't know what you're doing. But at the end of that rulebook section, it simply says, the communication rule is up to you. So I don't, <laughs> I don't really know. But I think this game is truly best at one. And I say that because I tend to split the solo games I play into two distinct camps. The morning games and the evening games. The morning games are the games that I play while waking up. I make myself a cup of coffee, toast some bread, and play a nice breezy game. It's something I don't really have to think too much about. I think a lot of people liked Railroad Inc. for example in this camp, although I never really got into it. You also have the evening solo games, and these are your heavier ones that require more thinking, more forward planning, more strategy. My favorite solo game falls in this camp, Spirit Island. I actually have the energy to set these up in strategize versus in the morning when I'm just waking up. Coffee Shop Pocket is definitely in the first camp. I think even the theme resonates with the idea of playing this while drinking a cup of coffee. It has a little bit of strategy, but for the most part, it really is a game that half plays itself. You're going to draw three cards, and you'll know pretty quickly what you'll be able to do with those. Sure, you'll get better at remembering how many espressos are in the deck, or what to do when you can't do anything but it doesn't really require that much strategizing to win. You'll start beating the game pretty early. I beat it my second time playing, but then the challenge creeps in of how well you do it. How many points did you score? How quick did you beat the time? There are some cards, like I mentioned, that can turn into ingredients, but they don't have to. You get points if you don't turn them into ingredients. So maybe you'll get more points by scoring them instead. You get bonus points for finishing earlier, so maybe you figure out how to be more efficient. Can you, over time, get the highest ranks of Barista? I don't want to oversell this. It is another game in the line of Ju Game Studios that is pleasant, but not amazing. It's a game that doesn't ask a whole lot of you other than to appreciate the aesthetic, sit and play a breezy game, and be done. It doesn't overstay its welcome. It's about a 10 to 20 minute game, which is great for a solo game, and it's super quick to set up and take down. I think that 10 to 20 minutes includes the set up and take down. Although I wish they had different card backs for the ingredients and order cards, it would be so easy to do. Is it necessary? No, but it'd be nice. But what I like about this series, other than the small form factor, is the small price as well. Remembering that games do tend to be a bit more expensive in Japan, it's nice to see a game retailing for $13. It's just a pack of cards, so any more than that and I would start to get skeptical. But I think it's worth it for that range. If you're already thinking of ordering some stuff off of Amazon Japan, it's a nice little add-on that I think won't wow you by any means, but leave you feeling satisfied with your purchase. I mentioned it earlier, but Ju Game Studios really do a great job with the aesthetic in all of their games. They are one of my favorite publishers in terms of the style of their games, and this one is no exception. If you're looking for a breezy solo game and are already thinking of importing something else, I'd consider adding this one to the cart. That's Coffee Shop Pocket, designed and illustrated by Hiroshi Kawamura and published by Ju Game Studios. Well, that's going to do it for this Monday episode of the Board Game Dojo. Last week, we published a video of five interesting and unique trick takers from Japan. It was really fun to film. So if you haven't checked that out, I'd give it a look. I'll post links to some of the videos and podcasts I mentioned in today's episode in the description below. If you haven't already and you enjoy the podcast, please, 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 with the cherry on top, leave us a review on your podcast app or just tell your friends about the show. That's cool, too. We can be found on Twitter at the BG Dojo, Instagram at BoardGameDojo, or you can email us anytime at Board Game Dojo podcast at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening today. Arigatou gozaimashita. Until next time, Janne!